having an awesome time in worship, isn't it? But it is an issue that the Bible does address, and it is a question that our survey participants felt was real important, very important. And so we're going to see what the Bible has to say. If you could turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and while you're turning there, I'm going to show you this video. Channel 21, Brother Kelly. Buckle up and hold on. At our church, we love God. Make no mistake about that. At our church, we believe in God's radical, unconditional, and unwavering love for us. At our church, we believe that Jesus is God. We also affirm that you may or may not believe that Jesus is God. And we're not asking you to change your belief system before you attend our church. We're simply inviting you on a journey toward Jesus. For years, churches have placed a high priority on Jesus as the get-out-of-hell-free card. At our church, we place the highest priority on Jesus as a live-life-to-the-fullest invitation. At our church, we believe every person has a dream deep inside their hearts, and that God put that dream there, not for our glory, but for His. At our church, we're not concerned with where you've been, but where you're going. At our church, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. It is real. It is living. It is active. We believe that people who don't go to church anywhere are not the enemy. They are real people who need the perfect love that only God can give. And we believe that God gives this love through, of all people, us. At our church, we do not and we will not display a holier-than-thou attitude toward anyone. We are all broken people, but He is putting us back together. And finally, and most importantly, at our church, we believe that Jesus really lived, that He really died on a cross, and that He really rose again on the third day. And we cannot and we will not candy coat or water down that message, ever. Today, you've chosen to sit yourself in the middle of a very safe place to hear a potentially dangerous message. Welcome to our church. May the Lord make us that kind of church. Have you found 1 Corinthians 7 yet? While those are turning there that hadn't, I'd like to invite you to Wednesdays at Generations. It's a believer's meeting where we go deeper. We go wider on Sunday morning. We're going deeper on Wednesday night. It's an awesome time. Our children and youth are worshiping with us at this point in the season that we're in. The music is great. Uh, The teaching is wonderful. Different members of the body will be bringing the word of the Lord. And this particular Wednesday will be a healing service. So bring the sick and those needing uh, the Lord's healing in their life. Spirit-filled ministry. Believer's meetings on Wednesdays. Tell your neighbor, believer's meetings on Wednesdays. Next Sunday night is a very special event. It will be a night of worship here, starting with some fellowship and then entering into worship with uh, praise teams from six different churches and ministries. You will not want to miss it uh, because the place will be, be, be packed with people. We need volunteers. Who knows logistics is an issue when you deal with crowds of people. We need volunteers. And so there is a volunteers meeting right after service with Pastor Shake. Um, in this room or in, in back in the project room. Can we do that? Okay, back in the project room, back by the restrooms. Immediately after the service, who would like to volunteer and help make this a successful event? So by all means, who else would like to volunteer? Come on. I just want to be a customer. Well, this is your, ch- this is your church. Uh, we all want that church to be like we saw in the video, right? So it takes laborers. What if the disciples, when the 5,000 were fed, just wanted to eat? The Lord, did the, the Lord did the miraculous. He multiplied the fish and the bread, but he needed some help to distribute it. Amen. Help people to sat down in groups. They had it organized. So, so order is important. And so uh, the Bible says, let everything be done decently and in order. So hopefully you can stay after service. And uh, if you go on home, the Lord convicts you. You can call the church later on this week and say, what can I do? Have you found 1 Corinthians 7 yet? We're going to talk about divorce and remarriage. Um, The actual question in its entirety is how can we justify divorce and remarriage for any reason other than unfaithfulness? Um, So I'm going to just speak frankly and openly. Many times as a pastor, because you know issues in people's lives, you kind of, it's like walking through a minefield or an obstacle course, you know, 
Uh, one pastor I know, actually he doesn't pastor anymore. He refused to counsel people in his church because he said when he found out their issues, they'd leave his church. And yet his church kept shrinking and shrinking to the point he decided to retire. Anyway, so I may know some issues, but honestly, in preparing the sermon, I wasn't thinking of any particular person on the planet. I'm just dealing with the issue. So if you don't mind, let me stomp on some tulips, okay? Can we do that? All right, don't want to tiptoe. I'm reminded of a humorous story of a man that went to see a tailor to get a suit made, and when he went to pick his suit up, he was dismayed because uh, one of the pants legs were, uh, were too long. And he said, this, this trouser leg is too long. He says, what can I do? He says, oh, it's easy. It's really not the trouser leg. It's your leg. Your leg is too long. Just walk on tippy-toe like this. He said, you're kidding me. No, no, that'll work. He said, well, this arm is too long. He said, that's no problem. Just raise your arm up like this. And see, it's fine. It's perfect length, perfect length. Well, this, this leg is too short. Well, just stretch it down like that. See there? See there? It's fine. So he walks out of the tailor shop like this. And a little girl sees him and says, Mommy, look at that poor man. And her mommy said, Honey, don't stare, but don't his clothes fit him nice? (laughs) So let's dive into the subject. Many divorces occur through the will of one person. It takes one to tango a lot of times. To blame the innocent party by pointing out their weaknesses is to judge them for not being perfect, and this is wrong. To point fingers to the offending party is wrong because God is a judge. People experience the consequences for their sin. You don't sin and get by with it. Who knows that's true? Thank God for Jesus. The eternal consequences are paid for, but many times we live with the temporal results of sin that either we've done or someone else has committed. Why should a person who's been sinned against be treated as though he or she has sinned? And the whole concept of shaming people really isn't biblical. It's we speak the truth in love. Amen? And if people choose to reject the truth, I'm not going to be the policeman to watch them. Uh, I knew of one pastor. He was actually in Texas. He tried to be a policeman over his people. And uh, one day he called the church to a three-day fast. And to his dismay, the next day he saw some members at McDonald's staring at the menu. True story. Anyway. All right, I thought it was funny, but... <laughs> Should have said Dairy Queen staring at the pictures. Y'all would have loved that. <laughs> it has been said statistically that the divorce rate is higher in the church than it is in the world, which many are repeating without really thinking about it. For some, if this is true, it is good news because one of their pastimes is criticized in the Lord's church. I guess to defend why they're not a part of it. At least a local expression of it. Talking out of both sides of their mouth, they'll say things like, the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded, and then go on to do some shooting themselves by talking bad about divorcees and other problem areas they believe they are called to judge. For others, if this is true, it is bad news, because our testimony as a corporate people has been damaged by such information. Therefore, sermons like today should be heard more often. We need to hammer on it every Sunday, and we need to strengthen the marriages that remain and hold the fort. Until the Lord comes back. To many, however, it does not matter if it is true or not because they're going to use it in their anti-Jesus propaganda to further their ways of sinful living. Being who I am, someone who was told from childhood, you would argue with the sign you painted. I think we need to take another look at this statement. The divorce rate is higher in the church than it is in the secular world. Four factors. The shack-up factor, the stack-up factor, the specialty factor, and the schmatistics factor. Would you like to hear the factors? The divorce rate is higher in the church than it is in the secular world. First, the shack-up factor. I think more people than ever in the secular world are living together without being married. You want some statistics? There's some statistics on that. They're living together without being married and later breaking up without a legal divorce, thus hiding the statistics of breaking up of what is really going on in our day. According to the January 2007 article in the New York Times, 51% of American women live without a spouse in 2006. This marks the first time in American history that single women outnumbered the married women. The 51% of the single women was up from 35% in 1950 and 49% in 
in 2000. So more women are single or shacking up than women that are married, all right? According to government reports, almost four in ten babies born in the United States during 2005 were born out of wedlock. This means of the 4.1 million babies born that year, more than 1.5 were brought into the world by unmarried couples. This number, this number represents an all-time high. Several factors contributed to these statistics. While the teen birth rate did drop, unwed mothers in their 20s had a higher increase in birth rates than any other age group. In addition, the number of Americans choosing to live together without getting married continues to rise. In 1970, there were 200,000 unmarried couples with children. In 2005, there was 1.7 million couples living together who are not married. So if you, how do you factor that in? The, the world's not getting married as often as they were. The church continues to, you know, we don't want to live in sin, so we get married, all right? So the... the the statistics have been altered by the way the world is living, okay? So we need to kind of look on what has been said. The divorce rate is higher in the church than it is in the world with a critical eye. Next factor, the stack-up factor. Figures stack up. If a person's been married more than once, um, is that taken into account in the statistics? Let me give an example. If a person having been married five times, like the woman at the well who was shacking up at the time, but she had been married five previous times. If she were to join a small church, let's say with 20 people, 30 people, that had 10 first marriage couples in its membership, would her attendance bring a 50% divorce rate into that congregation? If one of the 10 couples were actually in their second marriage, would both of their divorces count in the survey and give them a 70% rate? See, it's, uh, it's, there's, there's a rat in the statistic closet. The specialty factor. This is my favorite one of these four critical things. The specialty of the church should be to help hurting people. And the greatest hurt of all plague in our culture today is divorce. Therefore, if we are going to be effective, the number of people recovering from divorces should be higher in the church than it is in the world. Right? The world just has everybody in it, that's in it, right? The church is reaching out to hurting people. Jesus said the sick need the physician. So everybody that's got it going on, they're making millions, everything's going right in their life, they're not going to get saved. I'm sorry. It's the hurting people that know they need a Savior. So should the church reach out to hurting people? Amen. So put your shotguns up, st statisticians. In fact, the particular guy that brought that up, that's pushing that concept. George Barna has an issue with the church anyway. He thinks we all should meet in houses and never grow. This church started in a house and we grew. I'm sorry, we have a building now. He doesn't like that. <laughs> then the fourth and final factor is the schmatistics factor. Statistics, schmatistics. I mean, anybody can rattle off numbers. There are so many variables in reporting statistics. How does anyone really know the full truth about them anyway? Did the statisticians take a survey of every congregation in the U.S.? If they did, that would be a census. They didn't do that. It takes too long. It's too hard. Nobody would cooperate. Were the polled Christian divorcees divorced before or after they began following Jesus? If such surveys are conducted over the phone, how do they know that everyone is telling them the truth about being Christians? So my purpose in sharing this today isn't because of the statisticians. It's in spite of them. So give you some food for thought. Hopefully you can rest that, put that in a container in your mind and come back to it later and let's follow on with the sermon. Statistics cannot convict anyone in a court of law. Like this guy lives in a neighborhood where 30% of the people are thieves. We need to throw him in a jail for theft. Come on. They cannot convict anyone in a court of law. So I say we stand up for what is true in our own lives and let God sort out the details. How can we justify divorce and remarriage? We're not looking to justify it. I don't think that was the intention of the person asking the question. The actual question was how can we justify divorce and remarriage under any circumstance except unfaithfulness? The question was asked because there is far too many divorces in our culture, is there not? I mean, one divorce is one too many, right? According to the New Testament, I know of one other circumstance other than unfaithfulness from 1 Corinthians 7. Not that we should be hunting for reasons to get a divorce, but let's learn what we can from the context and see what that reason is. All right, have you found 1 Corinthians 7? 
Paul writes, Now concerning the things of which he wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Don't touch. Amen? Um, if you're single and not a virgin and you decide to begin seeing someone, it is a good boundary not to be touching each other. Does that mean not holding hands? Well, can you hold hands without touching? It's just a good idea. It's good. Paul said it's good not to touch. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. Nevertheless, Listen to this. Because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let's say that together. Let each man have his own wife. Let each man have his own wife. And let each woman have her own husband. All right. Somebody, I don't want any elbows flying during this next verse. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. What is he saying? Don't be holding out on each other. Don't be doing that. That's a, it's not a good game to play. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So when you fast, you fast food. You don't need to fast water for very long. I think you fast it beyond three days, you're a dead man. But you can fast food for quite a while. And you can fast sex, all right? But do it with agreement. You know, don't just suddenly decide to have a fast. Talk about it. I feel a fast coming on. <laughs> Verse 6. But I say this as a concession... Not as a commandment. And he promotes the concept of celibacy and the benefits of that. For I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God. One in this manner and another in that. So some people, are, if you're being gifted as a celibate lifestyle, that's a good thing. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. And some people want to throw in the word hell. <laughs> better to get married than to burn in hell. He's saying it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If you don't have the gift of celibacy, then um, we can talk later on what the next step might be. Verse 28. Verse 28. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. I think the old King James says, those who marry will have trouble in the flesh. There's a promise for you that you don't find in the promise box that they sell down at the Word of Life Christian bookstore. It's just the truth. You don't have to pray for this one to be fulfilled. If you get married, you're going to be stretched. You're going to be stretched. So, if you're single, the word says, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. If you're single, it's permissible that you get married. It's the bottom line. But don't be like this person. Tony and I met during this morning's greet your neighbor time. We'd like you to marry us. <laughs> That's a little fast. You need to find out what his dad's like. Find out, does he have a job? You know, before Adam was given a wife, he was given a job. There's a priority there. Young man needs to have a job before he get his, gets a wife. Uh, how does he treat his mother? Uh, what are his parents like? Things like that and vice versa. And what do your friends think of him? Do you have any friends that shoot straight with you or do they only tell you what you want to hear? Your friends only tell you what you want to hear. They're not really your friends. I'm sorry. What are they telling their other friends about your boyfriend or girlfriend? Find out. Amen. How can we justify divorce and remarriage under any circumstance except unfaithfulness? Let's go on back to verse 10. Now the, to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. 
A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Now, in the days of the Old Testament, the Pharisees and the religion of Judaism become so legalistic, they knew all the loopholes. If a wife had bad breath, a husband could divorce her. So this was the scene in which Jesus came and ministered and made a statement like this. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. That's what Jesus said. Uh, The contemporary English version says it like this. But I tell you not to divorce your wife unless she has committed some terrible sexual sin. If you divorce her, you will cause her to be unfaithful, just as any man who marries her is guilty of taking another man's wife. The Message Bible says, Too many of you are using that as a cover for selfishness and whim, pretending to be righteous just because you are legal. Please, no more pretending. If you divorce your wife, you're responsible for making her an adulteress unless she has already made herself that by sexual promiscuity. And if you marry such a divorced adulteress, you're automatically an adulterer yourself. You can't use legal cover to mask immoral failure. Now, Jesus came to fulfill the law, first by applying the law to prove to man his guilt before him. He did. He made all the Ten Commandments a matter of the heart. You hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. That doesn't mean anybody that has hatred in their heart needs to go to the electric chair. He's just exposing the issue that's in their heart. It all starts in the heart, amen? But the good news of the gospel is while he applied the law and made it the issue of the heart to reveal to us our wickedness, he paid the price for breaking the law so that we can be forgiven, amen? How many is glad about that? Now, here is the other reason other than adultery. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, if a brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So if your wife's not a believer, don't be looking at the sisters in the church who to replace her with. She's happy to live with you, then you you are to remain married. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Okay? Uh, Don't be eyeballing the brothers in the church thinking, oh, I sure wish I had a Christian man. Talk to your sisters. Some of those Christian men aren't aren't Jesus yet. (laughs) But don't talk to my wife. All right, here, here's, here's why they can stay married and have a blessed marriage. And there's some women here like this and men who have unmarried spouses who are blessed. For the unbelieving husband is set apart or sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. He is blessed to have a Christian wife. If you're an unbeliever here today and your spouse is a Christian and you're not, I'm telling you, you're blessed. He's a keeper, she's a keeper. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they're holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So walk in peace. If you're abandoned by your unbelieving spouse, you have a future. Just trust God, pursue a close walk with him, and don't be beating yourself up. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? You don't know that. Many times people have to experience the consequences of their sin before they realize that they need a Savior anyway. Such in my case. So let him go. Don't be like this person. Pastor, I'd like you to meet my husband, Carl, who decided to come to church this Sunday. The Bible says, compel them to come to the supper. (laughs) So it's not a very complicated sermon today. The biblical reasons 
for divorce and remarriage are twofold. When adultery has taken place and repentance and reconciliation is not happening. The divorces I've seen in my short life in the church, this one and even in my childhood where adultery took place, and a divorce resulted anyway, it's because the person was extended mercy and refused to repent. And uh, it was forced. So if you discover that unfaithfulness has happened, it doesn't mean it's over. Trust God. It could be better than it has ever been before. You could get a new husband or a new wife out of this thing through the transformation that's going to take place in their heart. God has to do it. So trust Him. Amen? Second reason is when, un- when the unbelieving spouse decides to leave. Now, if you're being beat up, God doesn't expect you to put up with that. Call the police. Don't call me. Call the police. You call me, then he gets mad at me or she gets mad at me. I mean, it happens both ways, you know. And then I can't be an arbitrator or a a minister of reconciliation because they're angry at me. Call the police. Let them be the bad guy. They're the Romans 13 ministers assigned to that. Don't put up with it for five seconds. Call them immediately. Now, here's some faulty reasons for divorce that you will hear people say. This is written by Ken Sande, The Myths of Divorce. Five faulty reasons. When the love is gone, it's time to divorce. This is the Hollywood pattern. We just don't love each other anymore, so let's uh, divorce. Did you know love is a command? We're told to love. When the love is gone out of a marriage, it's time to divorce. Although this is the world talking, Christians often buy into it. The basis of marriage is not feelings of love in God's design. Commitment is the basis of marriage, and love is the fruit. Myth number two. It's better for the children to go through a divorce than to live with parents who fight. Although parents in a truly unhappy marriage may sincerely believe this, It is usually a superficial rationalization. One way to test their sincerity is to ask them to read the book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce. That's a secular book. It's unbelievable what's coming down the pike if you divorce for your kids many times, which clearly articulates the effects of divorce. If they still decide to go through the divorce after reading these facts, they usually have to admit it's not the children they're looking out for, but their own selfish desires. In um, Malachi... The passage that says uh, that God hates divorce was written to the guys who were divorcing their wives just because they wanted to trade in their 50 for 220s. That was supposed to be funny anyway. Um, (laughs) The context of that, him hating divorce, was him saying he desired a godly seed. Divorce does a number on our children. It makes them mad at God because they pray for it not to happen, and it happens anyway. Now, I personally believe this. If adultery is the cause of the divorce, the kids need to know it. That way they don't get mad at God. Just do. All right. Myth number three. God has given me a peace about getting a divorce. Ken Sande says, I repeatedly hear people say this. I know the Bible teaches divorce really isn't God's will, but in this case, God has given me a reprieve, a real peace that this is going to be okay. This statement reveals an improper understanding of spiritual guidance which elevates a sense of inner peace to such a level that it can overrule the clear teaching of the Scripture itself. This view of guidance must be exposed and refuted. I usually ask people whether they think Jesus felt an inner peace in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's sweating great drops of blood. If they try to say yes, I take them to the Gospels and let them see that in fact he was experiencing great apprehension and agony. If he had walked out, of the garden, unsubmitted to the Father's will, he may have had a great sense of relief and a peace at escaping from the crucifixion, but in doing so, he would have been turning his back on God's will for his life. In a similar way, divorce may promise immediate relief, but in the long run, it may result in something contrary to God's will and a life that has no peace as a result of it. So hold on to the plow. Don't look back. Do the will of God. 
Trust Him to bring you through. A happy marriage is two funerals and one resurrection. And sometimes you may be the only one having your own funeral. But hold on, because God is also your father-in-law, and He knows how to get His child's attention. Hold on, it's the truth. Some pastors, um, in dealing with church difficulty, bail and go to some other town where they'll face the same thing. But we've been here almost 20 years, and I've seen things turn around that I would not have seen had I not stuck it out through the tough times. Just see it. Amen. Number four, I know it's wrong, but God is forgiving. It's a frightful thing to sin deliberately. Point people to the example of King David who willfully sinned against God. God forgave him, but he left consequences that would grieve David for the rest of his life. How do people know that God will actually give them a repentant heart after they persist in willful disobedience? You know, we can sear our conscience. And the reason we desire to live pure before the Lord is the work of the Holy Spirit and a conscience that's sensitive to hear Him. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Word says it. We can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit. The Word says it. And we can sear our conscience. And sin takes us farther than we want to go, costs us more than we want to pay, and keeps us longer than we want to stay. And so while it may appear just one little divorce, you don't know what else you're going to do. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Thank God that He gives us new hearts. So we need to keep our new hearts submitted to Him lest we return to our old ways of thinking. I know it's tough, but it's, it's the truth. Surely a loving God would not want someone to stay in such an unhappy situation. This myth is based on humanistic presupposition that God's purpose in our life revolves around me and my happiness. One way to expose this way of thinking is to ask the person to unfold what it means to say a loving God wouldn't want me to suffer this way. Ask him to imagine or her to imagine that they have gone back in time 2,000 years to the days of the persecuted church in Rome. And they've been asked by a local church to go to the Colosseum and counsel the Christians who are about to be sent out to the lions. Would he or she really say to them, surely a loving God would not allow you to suffer like this? What would have happened to the early church if those Christians had believed such a notion? It is crucial to help suffering people understand that God has something far more important in mind for his people than pleasant lives. His purpose is to conform us to the image of his son. The Bible teaches that this requires pruning melting, purifying, and going through the fire to burn away the dross in our lives. And this is often done through the furnace of suffering. Jesus came, John the Baptist said, for two things, to baptize us with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he said his fan, his winnowing fan, is in his hand and he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's come to bring purification in our lives. And so marriage isn't to make us happy, it's to make us holy now we can't get in a time machine and go back and undo the past please don't allow this sermon to do this to you you are who you are in the presence of god right now and you're responsible for what you know and what you've heard right now and you may be in your second third fourth or fifth marriage i have a brother who's been married for 18 years now to wife number five and i tease him and say i think you're gonna make it Sooner or later, you've got to hold on and go through the fire. Walk through the hard times together. Amen. Learn to love when you don't feel like it. Amen. Well, you Christians just get everything you got from the Bible. Yes, but I tell you what, wise people also understand the purpose of sticking through hard times. Look at what Martin Luther King had to say. He said, I still believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. He might still be alive if his personal happiness was his purpose in living. But what kind of nation would our nation be? What kind of church would our church be? God had not raised him up. So, how do we justify divorce and remarriage? We don't. And you need to know this. Jesus justifies sinners. 
He does not justify sin. He forgives sin. So whatever sin is in our past, it is forgiven. And if not, you can receive the benefits of it because the price was already paid 2,000 years ago. Amen? And you can stand justified in His presence. Some theologians say, just as if I'd never sinned. Well, if you forgive your child his misdeed or her disobedience, you don't bring it up again. So he casts our sins away from him. He chooses to not remember our sins anymore. It's not that he, for, he forgets, because God doesn't have a weakness. He chooses to not remember. Someone um, came to Mother Teresa and brought up some infraction that had happened years ago. You know, how she should still be mad about it. Can you believe they're still around and what they did to you? She said, listen, I clearly remember forgetting that. <laughs> Amen. Amen. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, the rest of the passage, loving not our lives even to the death. So if there's not immorality going on and your spouse is a believer or an unbeliever doesn't want to leave you, stick it out. Stick it out. Stick it out. Amen? Stick it out. Paul said, "Let, let each man have his own wife and each woman have her own husband. But if you can be like me, it's better to be single is what he said. Because those who marry will have trouble in the flesh. So in spite of come what may, I challenge you to stick it out, amen? Amen. Stick it out. We want to do whatever we can to help you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the gift of righteousness and forgiveness, Lord, without which none of us would have any sense to come in out of the rain. Lord, I pray that those who have been through a divorce, that they would not be condemned by this message but that they would be encouraged for their future thank you lord for the new beginning that you give to us thank you so much make us a church lord that pursues hurting people to the point that there is more divorced people in here than there is out there percentage wise in jesus name Forgive us, Lord, where we've been high and mighty and haughty. Make us loving people of truth and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, mercy without truth is cruel. It just is. It's okay, Johnny. You can run out in the street and play. He's going to get killed. And truth without mercy will kill you. Truth without mercy kills. Mercy without truth is cruel. It kills in the long run as well. It's about having godly seed. And maybe you've been separated from your children by divorce. I want to encourage you to continue praying for them. If you're their father or their mother, you have a position of authority and prayer that no one else on the planet has other than Jesus Christ. Continue praying for them. I have a dear friend named Dale Smith who lost touch with his kids for years. And he became a believer and he began to pray. He didn't know where they were. He finally found one. I think living in Arizona. Here he is in Dallas. And that kid had become a YWAM missionary. So prayer works. Prayer works. Amen. Hallelujah. It's all about our seed. We're going to call the prayer team forward to pray for people that need healing, encouragement of any kind. And also going to ask my daughter, Summer, who's here. Summer, can you stand? She's going to Sierra Leone. Many of you have given to help her do that, so we'd like to pray for her as well during this time of prayer uh, to send her out. She leaves on Thursday. So if the prayer team, if you could come forward, line up on either side of the steps. Summer, if you could come join me up here. And we're going to end the service with a season of prayer. If you'd like to receive prayer for anything, it could be related to the message or not related, we'll be up here to pray for you. And as we're coming forward, come on up with them if, you, if you'd like to receive. Lead us in a song.
Harry. 